Thank you for checking out the sermon at Hope Church. We exist to connect people to live the life of a Jesus follower. We're excited that you came across this message and are tuning in. We just want to make you aware of a couple things before we get to the sermon. First, we'd love to connect with you. You can follow us on our social networks by searching at Hope Church LV. Also, be sure to check out our website, hopechurchonline.com. There, you have access to other resources, information about who we are, and where we're going as a church, as well as an opportunity to give to what God is doing through our church. Once again, thanks for checking out this sermon. Please let us know if there's any questions you have or any way we can come alongside you and your family. Enjoy the message. Amen. If you are visiting with us uh, here at Hope, Uh, This is not normally the way I would stand before you to teach God's Word. Normally I have a pulpit here and I'm standing to teach. But um, as I I prepared this week's message, and some of you will know what I'm talking about because you were here last weekend and kind of heard how we got where we are today. Um, Anytime you, you teach God's Word, there is a great sense of humility that you feel in response to the Word of God. And in preparation of God's word. But there are some weekends where um, there's a greater sense of humility that I personally feel uh, in teaching God's word. And this is one of those weekends for me because of the content, what we're going to be talking about. Where, first of all, I sensed a great humility before the Lord um, in, in teaching today and in unpacking the scripture that I wanted to unpack for us today. Just making sure what was going on over there, right? You, you can see it, but I can't. And I want to I wanna know if I need to move. I'm moving now, right? <clears throat> that's right. <laughs> he said he got my back right here, so that's good. Um, but uh, there was just in my heart a great sense of humility before the Lord in, in preparing the, the truths that I want to share with you today. But also, there was a great sense of humility that I, I, I felt towards you. Um, because, to be honest with you today, as I unpack the truths that I want to share with us, I need to hear them as much as I need to teach them. Um, now, that's always true, okay? When I'm preaching the Word of God, I always need to hear it. But, but today, in particular, as we talk about the issue of husbands and wives and the, the marriage relationship, I want you to know that that I could be sitting right there with you. So I wanted to, to, to maintain that same posture. We are together in this today, having a conversation around the table, if you will, uh, about what God says in His Word <coughs> as it relates to husbands and wives. Um, and, and the other reason that I sensed a, a great, I think, attitude of humility in, in the preparation and in teaching of, of the Scripture that we're going to turn to in just a moment today is, is because it's always a challenge when you're a pastor and a teacher and the audience is so broad and diverse and yet the topic that the text gives you this week is so specific. I know that not everybody in here today is a husband or a wife. Um, and there's a great sense, I, I want you to know, see a little bit behind the curtain that um, there's a great sense of humility and a great sense of burden before the Lord. Because I know, I know that as I teach some of these things today, there are all kinds of different situations represented here. There are some single people in our congregation today. And some of you are single and very content 
in that singleness. Others are single. And you would desire nothing more than to find that person that God has for you. And I want you to know, when, I, when, when I'm preparing something like this, well, I do it with a heavy heart for some of you. Because I know that the weight of some of this, sometimes depending on your life situation, can be difficult and it can be hard. And I know that in a situation like this, we, we have um, new Christians. And we got a lot of new believers in our church. And so some of you are going to hear some things from God's Word today that, to be quite honest, you've never heard before. Um, and it's, some of the things are going to be very countercultural because the life of Jesus is radical. Amen? Amen. Life of Jesus is radical. And, and, and it radically rubs against the grain of much of the way our society views some of these things. And so I understand there, there are some new Christians that are going to hear some things for the first time. And that, that gives me a great sense of humility before the Lord to know that I need God and His grace to give you ears to hear what it is that God wants to say to you today. Uh, I understand that as we sit here this morning that there are people that have come from broken situations. And sometimes hearing the truth of these scriptures um, can, can, can surface emotion from stuff in your past. And so I, I, just, I just wanted you to hear me as I begin today say to you that um, I'm sitting here before you today as one of you. I, I am um, a guy at the gym where I work out this week. Uh, he knows I'm a pastor, and he just called me by my name. He said, hey, Vance. And he said, I mean, I mean, hey, pastor. I said, no, wait a minute. Hey, pastor is what I do. Before I'm a pastor, I'm a brother. Brother is what I am. Pastor is what I do. I'm a brother in Christ before I'm anything else. And so I sit with you today as a fellow brother in Christ looking at God's word. And, and what I really hoped to accomplish is I'd love to be able to sit here today and you feel like, I know it's hard in a room like this, but you feel like it's me and you. If you is a couple that's married, who's doing well, and we're just talking around these truths to give you greater strength and encouragement into your marriage, I want you to leave feeling like it's me and you, and we're sitting here at this table. If you are a couple that's in crisis, and you're walking through some difficult times, I want us to be able to sit around this table together and have a conversation and apply God's Word to some of those situations. If you are a single adult, and you are in that stage of life where you're looking for this, I want it to be like it's just me and you, and we're just talking around these truths. If you're a parent of children, and you're desiring to raise them up in a way to understand what husbands and wives look like, my prayer is that we can feel like we're just sitting around the table having a conversation about these things. So that, that's my heart. Does that make sense? All right. Um, with that, I want to jump into our, our text today, and I want to do that, first of all, by reminding you of the big idea that we're unpacking through the letter of 1 Peter. I want to put it up on the screen. Um, 1 Peter, in the letter that, that he gives us, he unpacks this big idea. Let's read it together. As the people of God, we are who we are because of who Jesus is. Now stop right there. That's a statement of identity. Peter's been teaching us who we are in Christ. But then he says, let's read it, and who we are in Him shapes how we live. Who we are in Him shapes how we live. That's the whole letter of 1 Peter. Peter's helping us understand who we are in Christ. Uh, 
And then understanding who we are in Christ, Christ in us, living through us, begins to change how we live. And Peter has been giving us examples. And what Peter is helping us understand is that the more we grow in Christ, the more his life is reflected in our everyday lives. That's simple, right? The more you and I grow in Christ, the more his life begins to be reflected in our everyday lives. Now, what Peter has been doing here is giving us some examples. He gave us the example of what it looks like in secular societies. We relate to government. He gave us examples of what it looks like in our uh, work relationships and business relationships. He gave us the example of Jesus from when he lived here on the earth. He's giving us now the example of family and what it looks like inside the family. Next weekend, we're going to finish this series, The People of God, by talking about what it looks like inside the body of Christ as we relate to one another's brothers and sisters. In Christ. But last weekend, we began to lay some foundation out of 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. I want you to go ahead and turn there if you have it in your Bible. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. <clears throat> and again, before I read these verses, I'm going to set it up like I did last weekend. We're going to read some things here that are going to sound, if you're not familiar with them, outdated. They're going to sound like they're not current, okay? But here's what I'm going to ask you to do. Hear me all the way to the end today, all right? We're going to finish this today. Last weekend, we only got about a third of the way through, uh, so we got a lot of ground to cover today. Um, It's another reason I'm sitting down, right? We're going to be up here for a while. I didn't hear any amens right there, but you think I'm kidding. I'm not. We're going to be here for a minute, but it's important stuff. Okay, It's God's Word. So don't hear these things and check out. Don't hear these things and tune out. This is written to us by God Himself. And it's instruction to help us live our lives. And it's the overflow of what it looks like when we're becoming who we are in Christ in our everyday lives. Inside the context of marriage. So 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Let me read it for us. In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. Just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker, since she is a woman." And show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. I told you last weekend uh, that this text of Scripture, in many ways, is countercultural. And as Christians, we must allow our worldview to be shaped not by the shifting sands of culture, but we must allow our worldview to be shaped 
by the timeless, eternal truth of the Word of God. So what I want us to do as we read these and as we unpack these truths is, is kind of use it like a mirror that we're looking into at our own lives to see, is my life a reflection of who Christ is in me, which is what Peter's revealing here, or is my life and the way I relate as a husband or wife more reflective of the culture that is around me? So we're going to look at these things together. And last weekend, I don't have time to review them because we just don't have time, but I gave you five foundational principles of marriage and family. If you were not here last weekend, let me encourage you, go online and watch last weekend's message because these two things go together. You need the five foundational statements. Don't have time to review them, but you need to look at those. I'm going to give you the fifth one. Here's where we ended last weekend. Marriage is a relationship with clearly defined roles. And that's really what Peter is describing here. Here's what it looks like for a wife. and Here's what it looks like for a husband. It looks differently. Clearly defined roles in the context of marriage. Now, we said it last weekend. These roles have nothing to do with equality. You can go back last weekend and see how we unpacked that. They're not talking about equality or inequality. They're talking about... That They have everything to do with God's design for the family structure. Just because the roles are different doesn't mean they're not equal. They are equal. They're just different. God's given us wisdom of, of what it looks like to be a husband and a wife inside the context of marriage. And as we go through this, don't forget this. What Peter has laid the foundation and is unpacking here is that this is what it looks like for a wife and then a husband when who you are in Christ becomes Christ in you. We're really talking about Christ-likeness demonstrated in the marriage relationship. That's why in verse 1, he opens with the phrase, in the same way. And then in verse 7, he opens with the same phrase, you husbands, in the same way. What's he saying there? Here's what he's saying. In the same way Christ in you changes the way you relate to government, in the same way Christ in you changes the way you relate to other people in society, In the same way Christ in you changes the way you relate to your employers and your employees. In the same way Christ in you changes the way you relate to brothers and sisters in Christ. In the same way Christ in you changes the way you relate to your spouse. So what I've done is I've taken these seven verses and I have two statements that deal with the role for a wife. And I have two statements that deal with the role for the husband. We're going to do wives first because that's the way Peter did it. Nothing implied by that. That's where we're starting, all right? Don't read something into something that's not there, all right? You say, why do you say that kind of stuff? Just come read my email inbox one week. You think I'm kidding. Just come read it some week. So nothing implied. It's just the order that the text dealt with them. So I'm going to do wives first. Then we're going to come back and do husbands, all right? So here's statement number one that is an expression of what it looks like when who you are in Christ becomes Christ in you as a wife. Number one, there's an ongoing attitude of Christ-like submission. An ongoing attitude of Christ-like submission. Look at verse one. In the same way, you wives, (coughs) be submissive. To your husbands. Be submissive. 
The word, that little phrase, be submissive there, is a present tense verb. It means that it describes ongoing continuous action, meaning you could literally translate it in the same way you wives continuously be submissive to your husbands. Now, I understand that some of you are already checking out because we don't like the word submission. I mean, let's just be honest, all right? We're just sitting around a table having a conversation. We don't like the word submission. We just don't. Our flesh rails up against the word submission. Let me tell you why. We've allowed our culture to shape our worldview rather than God's word. Let me remind us, and I want to talk to all of us here for a second. Submission is a way of life for the follower of Jesus. Let that sink in for a second. You and I have been called to live a life of submission as a follower of Jesus. If you struggle with the word submission, you have an issue with God's call on your life. Think about it. Think about it. First and foremost, we are every one of us called to live in submission to God. All of us. As children, we submit to God by submitting to our parents. As citizens, we submit to God by submitting to our governing authorities. As employees, we submit to God by submitting to our employers. As wives, we submit to God by submitting to our husbands. As husbands, we submit to God by submitting to our spiritual authorities in the church. Every Christian, regardless of your stage of life, regardless of your role and responsibility in life, every single one of us have been called to a life of submission. The life of a Jesus follower is all about submission, and that should not surprise us because Jesus' life was defined by submission. Let me show it to you. John 6, 38. Listen to what Jesus said. I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus' entire humanity was wrapped up in the context of submission. So, should it surprise us that one of the characteristics of Christ in us looks like the very way that he lived his entire humanity, a life of submission? What is submission? Let me give you a definition. Here's the word submission. To place oneself under in an orderly fashion. That's submission. To place oneself under. The call to follow Jesus is a call to submission. It's a call to place others before ourselves. I'm not just talking right now about wives. I'm talking to all of us. The call to follow Jesus is a call to place others before ourselves. Let me read it to you. Matthew chapter 20, verse 26. 
Look what it says. It is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So here's what I want you to hear me say. As followers of Jesus, we need to get over culture and get comfortable with the word submission. It's not a very American term. We like independence. We like me first. We like pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and you go after it and get it, right? That's what we like. Jesus said, you want to be great? Be the servant of all. Submission is a way of life for a follower of Jesus. So when when Peter here is unpacking the structure of the home, understanding that God has given to the husband the responsibility to be the spiritual leader of his family, the first thing he points out is that the wife, one of the things she's to do is to, in an orderly fashion, place herself under her husband, to live in submission to her husband. Now, before you drive that car off a cliff, let me tell you a couple of things submission is not, okay? Here are two things submission is not. Number one, submission is not a statement of inferiority. It's not. Let me prove it to you. Everything we believe in Christianity is rooted in our understanding of God. If you agree with that, say amen. Listen, everything we believe in Christianity is rooted in our understanding of God. And everything we believe about God is founded upon the principle of the Trinity. What is the Trinity? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. One God. Three distinct personalities. Explain that. I just did. That's as good as it gets. Listen, God's bigger than our box to put him in, all right? There's some stuff we don't understand, but that's okay. Because there's some days I don't understand, and I'm glad there's one that's bigger than my understanding that's in control of it all. Amen? One God, three distinct persons. And yet, inside the Trinity, the Son, Jesus, submits to the Father. The Holy Spirit submits to the Son. Does that mean that Jesus and the Holy Spirit are less God than God the Father? Absolutely not. Everything we believe about Christianity is rooted in the doctrine of the Holy Trinity. One God, three distinct personalities, all of them completely, eternally God. And yet inside the context of the Trinity, there is a relationship of submission. Submission does not mean inferiority. Jesus is no less God than the Father. He is 100% God. As a matter of fact, the Bible says of Jesus, He is all that God is with skin on. And yet He lives in submission to the Father. So submission is not a statement of inferiority. That's where we've let our culture add to this language. To submit does not mean that the wife is somehow inferior to her husband. That is a lie from the pit of hell. That is not true. It's not true. It's not true. Let me tell you the second thing submission is not. Submission is not absolute. Say, what do you mean by that? 
This is not a statement that all women are to be submissive to all men. It's not what this says. Let me show it to you. Look back at verse 1. In the same way, you wives be submissive, listen to this, to your own husbands. This is not a general principle where somehow women in society are to be under men in society. That is not the principle. That's why it is very specific language. We said last week in the importance of the fact that God inspired every word of Scripture. Well, this is an inspired phrase, and here's what it really says. It says, wives, you be submissive to the man that belongs to you. There is a unique relationship between a wife and the husband that God has given to her. So it's not an absolute principle. Submission doesn't mean that in every situation that that a woman is to submit to a man. That's not what it's saying. He's very specific here. Let me tell you another way it's not absolute. It's not absolute in that it's not all the time. You say, what do you mean by that? Here's what I mean by that. You have a higher authority to be submissive to, and that's God himself. And in any situation where there's an authority that we are submitting ourselves to, whether it's government, where it's employers, whether it's parents, whether it's a spouse, whatever it is, when that person deviates from God's revealed word and God's will revealed in Scripture, then I'm not to submit to that person. I'm to submit to a higher authority, which is God himself. So there is a higher authority. And here's the reality. For a wife to submit to her husband is really about you trusting God's authority in your life and not your husband. You see, when you submit to the leadership of your husband, here's what you're really saying. You're not saying, he knows more than me. It's not what you're saying. Here's what you're saying. God, you know more than me. And I trust you. You've given me this husband. Lord, until he deviates from your word, I'm going to live in submission to that. Not because I trust him, but Lord, I'm going to do it because I trust you. God gave you your husband as a spiritual leader. And when you submit to him, you're declaring that you trust in God. As who you are in Christ becomes Christ in you, it looks like submission. Which is living out Christ-like humility towards your husband. Here's what that means. When a wife is submitting to her husband... She is choosing voluntarily, it's an important word, voluntarily to put the needs and desires of her husband ahead of her own. If this characteristic is absent from your lifestyle, it says more about your walk with Jesus than it does your relationship to your husband. I didn't expect any shouts at that point. I knew the women wouldn't. I knew the men wouldn't even get close to it, right? But that's the reality. Because remember what Peter said. This is who you are in Christ becoming Christ in you. And if I have an issue in this particular area, it says more about my relationship to Jesus than it does my spouse. Because it's about Christ in me. It's about who he is living through me. Paul described it this way in Ephesians 5. Look at this verse. We've got to move on past this one. But, but, but as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands and everything. What does that mean? The church is subject to Christ. It means this. We've died to our wants and desires, and we live for his wants and desires, right? 
That's what it means as the church. We don't live for us. We live for him. Here's what he's saying. As a wife, the same is true in marriage. You put the wants and desires and needs of your husband ahead of your own. Now, before we move past this, Paul adds a word here to to wives, or I'm sorry, Peter adds a word here to wives whose husbands are unbelievers. Because here's what was happening in the first century. Same thing that's happening here. There were, in some situations, women were coming to Christ before their husbands did. They'd heard about Jesus. They were the first to come to Christ. And now they're living in a situation where their husband's not a believer. And and sometimes that wife, in a desire to want her husband to be a believer, becomes an apostle in his life, right? And she is constantly preaching Jesus to him. Listen to what Peter says. Look what Peter said. Wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word. The word disobedient is a word that literally means not believing. They hadn't become believers yet. They may be one, listen to this, without a word by the behavior of their wives. The word behavior is the way you live your life. Here's here's what this means. The primary influence on husbands will not be the speech of their wives, but their godly behavior. It's the way you live. So if you have a husband that doesn't know the Lord... Let me give you a prayer. God, change me. And Lord, then through changing me, would you ultimately change him? God, change me. Now, before I move to the next point, let me, let me say this. Because I, just, I wrote this down this morning. I just feel like it needs to be said. If you are here and you are someone who's living in an abusive relationship, this is not, this is not dealing with that, all right? If you are living in an abusive relationship, it is not God's will for you to do nothing. It's not. If you're living in an abusive relationship, I encourage you to seek some help. You need to seek some, go to your small group leader, come to one of our pastors. Come in, talk to it. Listen, we want to help you. Is that clear? If you got that, say amen. amen. Okay, let me give you the second one. An ongoing um, attitude of Christ-like submission. Here's the second one. An ongoing pursuit of genuine beauty. For the wife, when who you are in Christ is becoming Christ in you, there's an ongoing pursuit of genuine beauty. Beauty. Look what he says in verse number 3. Your adornment must not be merely external. The word adornment here in the Greek language, it's the word cosmos or cosmeo in the verb form. Does that sound familiar at all? Cosmeo. I think we got a whole industry in the United States based on this word, right? We do. Here's the word in English we get from this Greek word. The word cosmetics. He's talking here about the thing one uses to make yourself beautiful to others. That's where the word cosmetic comes from. Something you use to make yourself beautiful. He's here addressing the principle of how you make yourself beautiful. And what he says here is, don't let your adornment be <coughs> excuse me, merely external. This again is in the present tense. That be there. Present is. He's describing ongoing, continuous action. So 
to the wife, there should be an ongoing pursuit of genuine beauty. One of the ways you relate to your husband in Christ-likeness is submission. The second is you continuously pursue keeping yourself beautiful to him. And I want to say this in two statements. Number one, attract your husband with how you look. Attract your husband with how you look. That's the first thing uh, Peter's writing here. And understand when Peter says um, your adornment must not be merely external, he didn't say external doesn't matter. Everybody all right? He said don't let it be merely external. We're going to talk about that part in just a minute, but this point needs to be made. If you hadn't figured it out yet, men are visual beings. That's why everything can change in a moment if we see the right thing, right? Men are visual beings. Ladies, remember when you dated your husband before you married him? How you always wanted to look just right? Here's what Peter's saying. Don't give up the fight. Don't quit because you got him. Don't stop. Listen, it's not, don't don't miss this. It's not unspiritual to keep pursuing your husband that way. It's not. And I wrote this down this morning, and take this for what it's worth, all right? Most of the couples that I have counseled where the husband has had an affair... It's not always the husband, sometimes it's the wife. But the couples that I've counseled where the husband has had an affair, the woman that he had an affair with was very seldom more attractive. But let me tell you what she was. She was more aggressive. Don't give up the fight. Be aggressive, ladies, to attract your husband with how you look. If you don't, somebody's going to. Everybody all right? I'm telling you. I, I'm, I'm not trying to be mean. I'm trying, I'm just, look, I'm trying to t- There's a reason this is in the book. He said, don't let it be merely external. He didn't say, don't pay any attention to it at all, right? He just said, don't let that be all you do. Let me give you a second one. Attract your husband with how you look. Here's the second one. Attract your husband with how you live. And this is really even more important than the first one. It takes them both. But this one, that's why he says, don't just focus on how you look because that's not enough. That kind of beauty is only skin deep. There's got to be more depth to what you're attracting your husband with. Your adornment must not be merely external. He gives us two words. Look at it. He says in verse verse 4, But let it be the hidden person of the heart with an imperishable quality of a, look at it, gentle and quiet spirit. Now again, we've let our society dictate what these terms mean, and we hear both of those as weak terms. They're not weak terms. This word for gentle, it's only used three times in the New Testament. Two of them describing Jesus. I don't think Jesus was weak. 
The third one is in Matthew 5, 5, where it's describing us as followers of Jesus living out the radical life of Christ in and through us. So it's only used three other times in the Bible. Two of them is Jesus, and one of them is Jesus in us. It's a word that means literally strength under control. It's a word that referred to a wild horse that had been brought under the control of the one who was riding it. That horse was still as strong as it ever was. It was now just keeping that strength under control. It was not demanding its own way. It was not selfishly assertive. Cultivate gentleness. Then he says a quiet spirit. Again, not a a weak term. This isn't a term of somebody who never speaks up. No, this is a term that means undisturbed from without. It means nothing shakes you. It means a source of confidence and stability for your husband. Listen, in, in 23 years now almost of marriage... There have been some dark days in our lives, some days that we've gone through that were hard. But I'm going to tell you what I've always known. My wife was a rock. She is unshaken by the things that happen around her. And you know what it does for me? It gives me an incredible sense of peace and stability to know that all hell may be breaking loose around us, but at home we're good. That's not weakness. That's a quiet spirit. Resolve. Both of these, gentle and quiet, are characteristics that are the fruit of the Spirit. In Galatians chapter 5, gentleness, the word quiet there is talked about as the word peace. Love, joy, peace. Patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. They come from these root words. It's the idea that, that, that gentleness and quietness are Christ in us being lived through us. Here's what that means, ladies. The greatest way you can love your husband is to love Jesus. Christ in you is attractive. Christ in you is attractive. And there's some great promises here. We don't have time to really unpack it. But he says, this is imperishable beauty. Imperishable means it will not fade away. Here's what that means. Although the external with time can change, here's what he's saying. This just gets better with time. You become more beautiful every day in this way. It attracts your husband. Then he says it's precious in the sight of God. Look at it there in verse 4. Which is precious in the sight. The word precious there is the word in the Greek language that means very expensive. It's a word that communicates value. Here's what he says. Man, when God sees that in you, it's valuable to him. It's pre- Why? Let me tell you why. Because it's his son in you. And he's always pleased with his son. So there they are. Two words, two statements for wives. An ongoing attitude of Christ-like submission. An ongoing pursuit of genuine beauty, both externally and internally. That's how you relate to your husband. You got that? Just the ladies in the room. You got that? Say amen. All right. You ready, men? You're up. Verse 7. Let me give you two statements for men. Here's the first one. For husbands, when who you, <coughs> you are in Christ becomes Christ in you, there's a constant pursuit of intimacy. A constant pursuit of intimacy. I want to show you something. Look at verse 7. You husbands, in the same way, 
Live with your wives in an understanding way. The word live here is a very relational term. There's a word in the Greek language, oikeo, which means to dwell or to live. This is a compound word, soon oikeo, which, which puts these two words together. It literally means to live together with. It's a very relational term. And it speaks to the whole of married life. And here's what, what, what Peter's addressing. He's writing to you and I as husbands, and he's saying in every area of our married life, spiritually, emotionally, mentally, physically, in every area. And it's, again, in present tense, it's constantly do this. He's describing something, man, that is a constant way we relate to our... Well, how are we to... And what, what is this defining word for every area of our married life? Here's the word, understanding. The word understanding is the Greek word gnosis, which is also translated knowledge. He's saying in every area of your married life, emotionally, mentally, physically, spiritually, you need to pursue knowing your wife. There are many words in the Greek language translated to know. One of them is the word oida. It means to know intuitively, meaning you know because of who you are. That's not this word. This is the same word that's translated knowledge in John 17, 3. When the Bible says this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent, it's a practical knowledge gained through fellowship. It's a relational term. Here's what he's implying. This kind of knowledge is only gained through fellowship. This kind of knowledge speaks to being sensitive to and considering the wife's deepest physical and emotional, and mental, and spiritual needs. Husbands, the challenge is that you and I are to pursue knowing, understanding our wives. Husbands, do you remember when you first met your now wife and you began to date her? Remember how you pursued her? You remember how you spent every moment you could with her? Do you remember how you wanted to know everything about her? Do you remember that your primary pursuit at that moment in your life was knowing her? When you took her out to dinner, you were captivated with every word that came out of her mouth. You were taking mental notes. You were listening. You were absorbing because you were planning what you were going to do next based on what she said, right? You were listening. You were obtaining that information. You wanted to know her. Why? Because you were trying to win her. Here's what he says. This phrase demands that a husband spends the rest of his life in that pursuit. The rest of his life. Knowing her. Understanding who she is. How God made her. Here's what I want you to hear me say. Do you know your wife? I'm not going to do it. 
And, and wives, don't, don't, don't do this, all right? Lay off the ribs today. But men, if I ask you to write down the five things your wife most enjoys, could you do it? You see what happens? We stop the pursuit. You see, men are wired visually. Women are more wired emotionally, mentally to engage. Women have to attract their husbands by the way they look, the way they live. Men, we have to pursue knowing our wives want to be known. They want you to understand them. It's what attracted her to you when you pursued that. And I love this. He talks about this in the context of a wife then being submissive to her husband. And men hear this. The reality for the husband is that as a wife submits, he is to not relate to her from a position of authority but a pursuit of intimacy. If you think somehow because her role is to be submissive that your role is to relate from authority, you've missed what he said here. If you're dragging that out in the conversation, you've missed the essence of this text. Our pursuit, our practice is not a position of authority. It's a pursuit of intimacy, of knowing. You say, well, how how do you do that? (laughs) I wasn't even that good at it when we were dating. How do I do it now? Well, listen to this quote by Wayne Grudem. Grudem says, such knowledge can only be gained through regular study of God's Word and regular unhurried times of private fellowship together as husband and wife. There are two practical suggestions that he gives us in that quote, and I want to give them to you in two statements that hopefully you can remember. I'm giving them to you in a way, hopefully you can remember this. Here's practical suggestion number one. Time with Him, Jesus. Time with Him. As the spiritual leader of your wife and family, the greatest thing you can do is time alone daily with God. When your wife knows you hear from God, she has no problem submitting to your leadership. You say, well, what does time with Jesus have to do with me knowing my wife? Well, two things. Number one, the only way for you to live this principle out is Christ in you, and that happens out of the overflow of your fellowship with Him. So your fellowship with Him is what's going to allow you to live this way towards your wife. But secondly, as you fellowship with Him, the Holy Spirit will reveal to you things about you and your relationship to your wife that you wouldn't see any other way. It's as you pursue time alone with Jesus that the Spirit of God is going to show you things in your time alone with Him where you need to change, where the relationship needs to change, where you've been out of bounds, where you've been out of line. God's going to show you things about your wife in your time alone with Him. So, number one, practical suggestion, time alone with Jesus. Number two, it's time with her. The only way to practice this pursuit is time with Him, Jesus, and time with her, your wife. Men, we intentionally must plan time to deepen our relationship with our wife. Listen to this. Because the natural tendency is to drift apart. We live in a culture that's dominated by what I like to call separate lives syndrome. 
People living as roommates. What's a roommate? Two people living under the same roof but living separate lives. Unfortunately, that describes a lot of marriages. Two people under the same roof but living separate lives. Men, we must be intentional to guard against that. You say, how do you do that? Well, you got to develop an intentional plan. Now, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you mine, all right? I'm going to give away my secret this morning. This is my, my plan. It's what God put on my heart. My wife knows this. I've shared it with you a couple of years ago before, just kind of in passing. It wasn't in the notes. And I had so many people email me and ask me for these things again that I'm going to give it to you on, <coughs> on the screen this time. But here, here's my plan. Here's the way my wife and I live this out, the way I try to honor this principle. Five things. Number one, pray daily. And that's either with or for. Every day, try to pray either with your spouse or for your wife. Number two, date weekly. Every week, some expression of a date. Date night. Uh, sometimes the dates feel more like dates than others, but it's, it's about weekly time alone with your wife. Number three, escape monthly. That's what I call an all-day date, where we'll plan a whole day at least once a month where we're just doing stuff, just she and I. Number four, get away quarterly, an overnight, a weekend, three or four times a year, which is you and your wife, just away. And then retreat annually, at least once a year, a number of days. It can be three, four days a week where you're together away by yourselves enjoying each other. Those are five ways that I try to live out this principle of time with her. I try to practice these. Now, now don't hear me put these up here. Remember, I'm sitting around the table with you today because I need to hear this too. I'm not perfect at that. But if you don't have a plan, what's the old adage that says if you, if you fail to plan, you plan to fail, right? If you don't even have a target you're aiming at, I promise you're not going to hit it. But if you have a target that you're at least aiming at, even when you do fall short, so here's what I'm saying to you men, you've got to develop your own plan. You've got to decide what it looks like for you. You can take this as a guide. You can take this as some principles. But you and I must pursue our wives. We've got to know them. An ongoing pursuit of intimacy. How are you doing that? How are you practicing that? Here's the second, final principle. We've got to hurry. A constant desire to show her honor. A constant desire to show her honor. Look what he says. You husbands in the same way live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker since she's a woman. And show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life. Show her honor. I love the way that he added that phrase, as a fellow heir. You miss it because we don't live in this culture. In the culture of the first century, women, wives, were viewed as the possession of their husbands. You have no idea how radical this statement was in its day. This statement by Peter elevated women in society to a joint heir, a fellow heir in the grace of life with their husband. This was a, isn't it interesting how over time we view this now from one lens, whereas in the time it was written, it was not a statement of inferiority. It was a statement elevating the role of women in society and the role of the wife to her husband. It says she's a joint heir, a fellow heir of the grace of life. And he says you're to show her honor. It's a, again, present active verb, meaning that it's not something that we do on occasion, but it should be the constant practice 
practice and pattern of our lives to show honor. Now, what is honor? Well, honor means to respect, to esteem, to revere. I looked up the word honor in the dictionary. It said to treat or regard someone with respect. So I looked up the word dishonor. To dishonor is to treat someone without respect. So I noticed both of the definitions had the word respect in it. So I looked up the definition of the word respect. Let me give it to you. To show you understand the importance of something or someone by how you relate. I thought, man, that's good. Here's what he's saying. Here's how you honor your wife. You constantly show her how important And how valuable she is by how you relate to her. You show me a man constantly pursuing intimacy with his wife to know her and constantly looking for opportunities to show her how important, how valuable she is. I'll show you a woman who doesn't have any problem with the word submit. Which means, men, <laughs> put your seatbelt on, it's going to sting a little. If you're married to a wife who has a submission issue, it says a lot more about you than it does about her. Now, that's a general statement, there are always exceptions. But in general, a lot more about you than it does about her. How do, how, do we, how do we do this? Let me ask you a question. Let me ask you a question, man. Does your wife understand how important she is as your wife, as a human being, and as a daughter of God by how you relate to her? Did you hear that? Does your wife understand how important she is as your wife, as a human being, and as a daughter of God by how you relate to her? Let me give you two practical suggestions. Number one. I can honor my wife with my words, both public and private. Can honor my life, honor my wife with my words. When's the last time, in private or in public, with your words, you tried to communicate to your wife how important, how valuable she is? Living out this principle of honoring her. It's the idea of praising your wife. Here's a question, husband. Do I constantly look for ways to show my wife how important she is by what I say both privately and publicly? Here's a second way we can do this. I can honor my wife with what I do with my time and my resources. Do I constantly seek to use my time and resources to show my wife how important she is, how valuable she is to me, how valuable she is in the kingdom of God? Gary Jasmine, who I just introduced to you, our new missions pastor, he was in our teaching team meeting this week, and when we were talking about this principle of honor, he offered this, and I thought it was great advice. He says he tries to always wrestle with two questions in relating to his wife, Seaham. What is she like, and what does she want? What is she like, what does she want? And here's what he said. My role is to give it and do it if I can. What is she like, what does she want? My role is to give it and do it if I can. Why? To honor her. To show her how valuable and how important she is. Now, 
Here's what's awesome about this. The answer to those two questions, what does she like, what does she want? Men, it changes every day. But here's why that's awesome. Because that just reinforces principle number one. I'm to constantly pursue knowing her. Right? I'm to constantly pursue knowing her. So that I can know the answer to those questions today. Because tomorrow it may not be the same. Right? That's true. Now, before we close this, I want to deal with a couple of things. And we're going to wrap up. All right? Everybody okay so far? I'm going to say something to the whole group in just a minute. So just hang on with me. But, but I know some of you are wanting me to address this issue. It says in here, Pastor, as with someone weaker since she's a woman. It's interesting how when most people read this, that's the biggest deal to them in the verse. And grammatically, it's a very minor statement. It's not a big deal. It's just a modifying statement. But, but let me help you understand what it means. The word weaker here, it's really best translated weaker vessel because it's two words in the Greek language. Weaker meaning without strength. Vessel meaning vase or vessel or container. And all he's really making a statement here about is this. In general, in general, it's not true in every marriage, but in general, the husband has by God been given more physical strength than his wife. It's in general. It's a general statement. It's not always true. If you watch UFC, you saw that girl the other night. I don't know who she's married to, but it ain't true there. So it's a general statement. It's like a proverb. The proverbs are not all the time always. They're general statements, right? But in general, here's what he's saying. God made the wife physically without as much strength as her husband in general. And that's why he says we're to honor her because she's weaker since she is a woman. The word woman here, interesting word, it's not the same word for wife in verse 1. This is a word that literally means the feminine one. Here's what he's saying. Our honor should be recognizing that in, 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 a, in a feminine being, God created men and women differently. And there is a uniqueness to her femininity that makes her special and valuable and precious in the sight of God. And here's what he's saying. And I love that he followed this up with this submit principle. Because here's what he's saying. Don't you dare use that as an advantage in living out this idea that they're to be submissive. He's saying, you show her honor because God made her the way he made her, unique in his own image, and that's to be honored and celebrated. It's where, for generations, we enjoyed the principle of what we call chivalry. Some people say chivalry's dead, but I'm telling you, biblically, it's not. We are to honor women because of the way God's made them. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I don't open my wife's door because she's too weak to open her door. No. Listen, my, I married Bob Vila, all right? My wife can redo furniture. She can, she can build stuff. Listen, at our house at Christmas, she gets the power tools. I'm telling you the truth. I bought her a skill saw and a drill for Christmas. I don't open my wife's door because she's not capable of opening her door. I open my wife's door because God made her the feminine one. And in a way that I want to show her honor as a created person in the image of God, created as a woman that God made different from me, I open the door to honor her. You see the difference? It's not a statement of inferiority or weakness. So, let me, let me, 
let me close with a couple of thoughts, and, and we got to get out of here. It's, it's the other people are about to come, all right? Um, <laughs> let me give a warning to the husbands here. Look what he closes with in verse 7. So that your prayers will not be hindered. Now, at this point, ladies, you should say amen that he's the spiritual leader in the home. You didn't get the warning. He did. Why? Because he's held accountable for leading. What does it mean? Here's what it means. My fellowship with God will not be right if my fellowship with my wife isn't Christ-like. The real test of your walk with God, sir, the real test of your walk with God is how you treat your wife when nobody else is around. Don't come in here and play like you're spiritual. If you're not honoring your wife and pursuing intimacy with her in an ongoing way. The book says your your relationship with God is going to be hindered. There's going to be a struggle there. Look what Wayne Grudem said. So concerned is God that Christian husbands live in an understanding and loving way with their wives that he interrupts his relationship with them when they are not doing so. No Christian husband should presume to think that any spiritual good will be accomplished by his life without an effective ministry of prayer. And no husband may expect an effective prayer life unless he lives with his wife in an understanding way, bestowing honor on her. That's pretty strong, man. So goes your relationship with your wife. So goes your relationship with the Lord. That's what it means. Now let me close with this. When my wife and I got married, this may be 23 years. When we got married 23 years ago, listen, we didn't live this out like we should. But Jesus, over 23 years, has changed and is changing us. I don't want you to hear me say up here today that we got this thing perfect. My wife's sitting right over here. She, she'll tell you we don't. We argue. We have fights just like you do. We have nights we get upset and don't speak to each other. We have the same stuff you deal with, all right? We're just like you. We, we deal with it too. We're human beings. That's part of the package, part of the deal. But Jesus is changing us. Let me tell you what I found. Husband, the more I live out verse 7, the more I realize my wife wants to live out verses 1 through 6. And the more my wife lives out verses 1 through 6, the more I want to live out verse 7. It inspires Christ's likeness in us.